When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. One of the first songs that Sophie Allison wrote for Sometimes Forever, her third album as Soccer Mummy, was a vivid daydream about self-immolation, a vision of fire as a purifying force, and a bleak nod to Sylvia Plath. Darkness Forever is a grotesque, sludgy song, cut through in its midsection by Allison shrieking in apparent horror. It's the centerpiece of Sometimes Forever, Allison's best album yet. And it's a demonstration in microcosm of how far the 24-year-old has come since releasing her first demos in 2016. Allison's debut album, Clean, was a promising collection from a clearly gifted and empathetic young singer-songwriter. 2020's Color Theory, which I spoke to Alison about at the time for the Fader interview, was more ambitious, a rumination on sickness and mortality split into three movements, inspired to some extent by the melodies of Avril Lavigne and Taylor Swift, but lyrically in a different universe. Sometimes Forever is the rare album that builds on that ambition. The darkness might overwhelm her at points, but there's light here too, bounding melodies and careening guitars and witty, even funny lyrical flourishes. That Alison was excited to work with someone whose music seemingly exists so far from her comfort zone is a testament to her inventiveness. That her songs and her own flair for production completely steal the show is proof that she's already one of her generation's most interesting rock musicians. Just before Sometimes Forever's release, I called Alison at her home in Nashville to talk about striving for perfection, allowing ugliness into her music, and writing a straight-up ghost song for the first time. Sophie, thank you so much for making time to talk to us. Of course. Congratulations on Sometimes Forever. Thank you. Just before the release of Color Theory, you and I spoke like at the Fader offices in New York. Maybe I didn't realize at the time what was going on, but the interviews you've given in the lead up to Sometimes Forever suggest that like, that was a pretty tricky time. What was going on for you in that period between like finalizing the album and releasing it? I was just burnt. I was just tired. I think the longest break I had had was like a month since I was 19. So it had been a long time of going really hard. And I was just tired. I missed normalcy a little bit. As much as I love traveling and have fun touring and and doing all that kind of stuff, I completely missed the sense of like being normal, hanging out with friends, relaxing, doing boring errands. Stuff like that, like, you know, not living out of a suitcase pretty much. So I was just worn down a little bit, I think. And I was still ready to keep doing more, but it was also like a little bit of a blessing in disguise to like have some time to chill. I mean, how close did you get to to canceling shows? I mean, we were supposed to go to South by like a week before it, you know, got canceled or something. And then it was like, oh, okay, this looks not great. And 
we kind of knew we were going to have to cancel the first tour and the stuff that we had going in the summer. But at the time, you know, there was still the idea of, oh, maybe by the fall, everything will, you know, be fine. Yeah, it was mostly, it was like an, in, felt like an, an indefinite little break. And I kind of treated it as such, honestly. I was like, we'll go back when we go back. Like, there's literally nothing we <laughs> we can do about, about that. I'm not going to, like, try to go tour when people could get really sick. And I'm not going to put anybody else in that position. So it was just kind of like it is what it is. Like, I'm just going to enjoy, like, or, you know, use my time wisely being off and we'll go back when it's safe to do so. Yeah. It was a kind of a relief almost to have that decision made for you. Yeah. I would have never made that choice for myself. I would have just for a million reasons, just wanted to do anything that, that comes. And that's just kind of how I've always been, which is how I end up touring a shit ton. I would have never chosen to take time off. Um, it would have been very scary choosing to do that. It would have felt like possibly like, you know, some terrible decision, even though in reality, it probably wouldn't be that big of a deal. But uh, yeah, I would have never done it on my own. You wrote about darkness and depression on that album in a way that was really revealing. And I assumed instinctively that I think we use this word way too much in music criticism, but that there was something sort of quote unquote cathartic about that like by getting it off your chest you just expelled or sort of organized those thoughts on the page is it fair to say that that was maybe a slightly too simplistic view on my part it is and it isn't you know like I think that it, for for me writing and for most people who write very personal music it is like thinking through something and kind of not necessarily just getting it off of your chest but for me it's like taking months of analyzing something and thinking about something and, and figuring out, you know, how I feel about it and what I think about it and then being able to like compile it all. And it, it is very satisfying in that sense. But of course it doesn't, you know, you don't write a song and say, I'm over that on to the next thing. So the thoughts you were trying to organize, I mean, obviously you, yeah, you don't just move on, but like are you still organizing them and processing them in different ways? Especially because when we talk about organization, Color Theory really was an album that was to some extent organized. It was sort of partitioned in different ways. Were you still like moving those things, those shapes, those objects around in your head after you'd written them? In some senses. I mean, there are, there are certain things that you write about that are just consistent your whole life and are always changing and there's more that comes to them and things like that. But I think when you at least for me, when I write a song, it kind of feels like I've figured out everything that I'm thinking on this and I finally know how to say it in a really concrete way. And I don't have to keep running over, like running through thoughts in my head constantly trying to like think through them. It does in a sense help stop that, you know, repetition and that cycle of, you know, just driving yourself crazy with thinking about the same things over and over again. But it doesn't change how you feel about them or the fact that you do consider them. It just like kind of gives you a, a sense of self-awareness on the issue. So you like understand yourself a little better, I think, or at least that's what it feels like to me. It's like writing a song about something that I've been ruminating on for a long time and kind of feeling like I have a concrete explanation of how I think and feel feels very like much like getting a deeper understanding of myself and like how my brain works. 
given all of that and given how burned out you felt just before what was meant to be the color theory tour how creative did you feel in those first months of lockdown when did you start writing did you did you feel comfortable writing pretty quickly um yeah honestly it felt like it felt great i had already i the first song from sometimes forever was written in summer 2019 so i had already written a couple i wasn't like even really sure what the goal of the record was yet i had just written a few things that i was having fun with but having time to be at home and write and just be like it did it wasn't like a new surge of creativity i wouldn't say but it did kind of give me time to like focus all the creativity that i was feeling and like sit down and like really work on a lot of stuff and just kind of like have fun with it. You know, there wasn't any goal in my mind of like, oh, this one's going to be like produced like this or some of them I didn't even know if I'd end up liking them or keeping them for a record. You know, it was just kind of like having fun making music on my own. What was the first song you wrote in the summer of 2019? Uh, Still. It was still. It's interesting then to hear that at the very end of the record as kind of like the bookend. Yeah. Darkness Forever was an early one as well, right? Yeah, that was the, that was the second one, I believe. That was fall 2019. I guess first then, tell me about Still. Like if that's the first song you wrote, did you feel pretty confident at the time that that was going to go onto a record or were you still just being playful? I did want to put it on a record because I really liked it. Ending songs, I don't know why. I always know when it's the last song when I write it. I'm like, that's it. That's the that's the closer. I think I like ending things on a kind of grim but beautiful note. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted it to be on the record, but I didn't know what the record was going to sound like or what direction it would all go in. And I, when I wrote the song, I was just very, I was in uh, turmoil, I'd say. <laughs> and I, yeah, I really did like it because it felt like just very like like it flowed out of me very easily it's funny even listening to listening back to the demos and stuff when we were going into the studio i was like wow the song like still is so different from some of the like ones that were written like you know like six months later just in like where i was in my life and like you know like how happy i was and it was just it's kind of like a crazy difference to be able to personally see and look back on a song fondly but also be like I was really in it I guess like <laughs> I was really going through it huh? yeah well I mean on that note darkness forever
yeah, the fact you wrote Still and Darkness Forever back to back is, I mean, the word turmoil does seem sort of appropriate. It's not as as long as Yellow is the Color of Her Eyes, but I think it's very much still the centerpiece of this album in the same way. And that to me, like, again, I know we sort of overuse the word cathartic, so I, I'm going to use the center, but like that really felt sort of like literally purgative. Yeah, I mean, definitely. That's that's the purpose of, well, I mean, like, honestly, when I wrote that song, I was just kind of obsessed with this idea of fire, like as a purging source of like like purifying uh like i was uh, just because it's something that's thought of as so like destructive and it obviously is but i was just imagining this like ritualistic purifying and i kind of had this like fantasy story in my head of like someone tormented deciding to like burn down their their house and themselves to like expel all of the like evil and like purify, like, you know, free themselves from darkness. It's interesting hearing you say the word someone, because I guess there's just always the assumption, and maybe this is a really reductive assumption. Obviously it's fantasy, it's not, you know, a prediction, but like in your head, was that was that a different person that you were imagining? Was it, was it the realm of fiction? Not really, no. I was feeling very paranoid and tormented by darkness. I think I tend to, when I'm feeling a certain type of way, become very drawn to metaphoric ideas of like cleansing and, you know, just like kind of like purging and this like idea of relief in heaven in a sense, even though that's not exactly, I'm really, I really do love like Christian like mythology for that reason. I mean, I'm not Christian and I wasn't raised Christian, but I think the ideas of like good and evil and like light and dark and like purity and stuff is really beautiful in a literary sense. And I think, yeah, I I tend to be very drawn to that kind of stuff when I'm personally going through something that feels like, you know, an outside force of, of darkness or evil has like descended upon me. When we spoke in beginning of 2020 just one thing stood out when i when i went back to it we were talking about twitter basically and how you just didn't enjoy social media you said i'm pretty bad about obsessively reading things about myself because i just want to know if it's out there what people think and try and perfect myself from it It's something that comes up in in the bio for this album which is written by pat mcdermott and then obviously you sing about it on unholy affliction there's been this sense this growing sense throughout your career of like striving for something the sense of perfection that you that you're going for that you know that you can't quite get which i guess is the same as this sort of black and white this good and evil this really clean cut like there is there is a perfect platonic ideal of something that you're going for is that something that you think you've you've honed in on maybe a little bit more recently like something that you've only realized about yourself over the last few years 
Oh, no, I definitely realized it before. I've I've been this way long before I was doing music as a career. I think I am a perfectionist, not, not in every sense of my life, but in things that I care about. And I am very driven and very unsatisfied with everything. Like, you know, I c- there's no goal I could reach that would satisfy me. I think I've become more accepting of that in a sense. I shouldn't even imagine it because there's no goal that will be this romantic sense of success that that just is kind of unmeasurable in reality. So I think for me, it's just become less about, like I, I'm still driven to, to want to make music that feels more and more satisfying and more and more perfect and everything like that, but not to expect some sense of satisfaction from things like that in life that are just completely based on unmeasurable ideals. You were talking about burnout, and that definitely comes through on Unholy Affliction. This sense of feeling mechanical and like perfectly efficient and this the capitalism against creativity, this this sort of fight that's going on there. You're six years into a career, this is your third album. There's obviously been like the EPs and singles and a lot of touring and a sort of enforced break which you know, it has its ups and downs. I mean, how much of a, some people call it the hamster wheel, like how much have you really felt that? Um, I definitely feel it like, you know, all the time, but I think I have recently, like since the last record gotten better at just kind of realizing that, you know, in a sense, you got to play the game. You got to do stuff that you don't want to do. You got to do like things that are just about helping the record sell that aren't, you know, what you're passionate about, just like any other job, you know, you just don't, you don't get to do everything that you want to do and nothing else, but just kind of like, I don't know, focusing my attention more on the things I do want to do and focusing like on enjoying those. And then the other things are just, I don't know, I think I just can't try to care about like a photo shoot. I just can't be like hoping it'll be good. It's like, it doesn't matter. I don't even like doing photo shoots. I don't even want pictures of myself. So it it doesn't matter how it turns out. You know, it's just something you do so you can keep making music. I have felt it a lot, but I've also kind of become more accepting of the sense of like, don't have to do everything. You don't have to love doing everything. You don't have to want to be a model (laughs) to do this job. But like, yeah, there's just things you have to do that you don't want to do. And if you if you take yourself out of it a little bit, it's less compromising, I think, to your sense of self. If you just like don't devote too much like attention or care to it. There's a purity of thought to that, I guess, and it's kind of old fashioned. But it's interesting because you, you talked a lot around the last record in particular about pop, like mainstream pop influences that you had, especially stuff from like your teenage years or even before. I think Avril Lavigne was one of the ones that was mentioned. A lot of the characters that you were talking about back then, I mean, were forced into the opposite of that. Like they had to play the game more. It wasn't just playing the game. Like they had to care about photo shoots and they had to harness that energy. Has, has some of your ability to reject that and, and your sort of sanguine attitude towards that come from seeing how like shitty it was for a lot of other people in your position before? Yeah, definitely. But also in a sense, I think, it was it was very hard because it's true that you know the more photo shoots you do and the more like fashion stuff you do and the more of this kind of stuff you do that it it correlates to following 
and to success in, in the sense of, you know, people, you know, having more fans, basically. So it correlates to success. At a certain point, I think you hit this wall where it's like, I can either spend most of my time being myself or being the, the artist. Not that they're necessarily different people, but, you know, spending all your time around other musicians, other people from the industry, other like fans going, you know, going to parties with all these kind of people, not just like your old friends from home. And you kind of hit this split where you can't hold on to both lives tightly without kind of, you know, losing one of them. And I don't know, I guess in it does correlate to success, being more involved and being more excited about like doing lots of fashion stuff and knowing other celebrities and making connections and networking and doing all those kinds of things. But it's just not for me. It's just not what I want. So if that means my growth will be slower, that is just, it is what it is. You were talking about ambition and this drive and this desire for perfection is scale a part of that like people aren't ashamed to say it quite rightly like yeah i want to be fucking huge like i want to be massive i want to be a superstar it doesn't necessarily mean i want to play the game but like i would be cool with that is that something that enters your head or would you is that sense of perfection that ambition purely geared towards i want to express this feeling i have absolutely perfectly or i want to write this perfect short story within this song and get the perfect sound out of a song is that is that it is it that pure of thought it's more about the music, yes. And like, that's the thing. Like, if this was a decade where people making music like me could have like a big pop song that was a hit, I'd love that just because I would love to see a song be loved and be like caught onto by lots of people. But I, for me, it's more about trying to make a perfect, you know, record or a perfect song and just getting to see people's reaction and getting to play it and feeling excited about that. And less like real success will be when I, you know, play Madison Square Garden. Like it's less of that. It's more it's more about like making an album that will outlive like me even, you know, that will always that will like be able to have a lasting um, effect, I guess. For all of that sort of sense of of wanting to push things further of wanting to perfect things there's still a beautiful sort of messiness to things it's not like you've tried to sand down the edges here if anything as your career's gone on, i mean i definitely noticed it on like the first your first full-length album i guess that's the first time when you really had like access to a lot more gear but i, th I think it's fair to say that your music has gotten progressively experimental as you've gone on that more sounds have come in that like you have also become like a really good producer as well as a songwriter and all the, like all these things have started coming into play and we'll talk about Daniel a little bit as well but like sort of growing comfortable with that cacophony with that mess and being able to channel that into something like very expressive what has driven you towards these odd interludes these big sounds these ambitious weird sounds that have found their way into your records increasingly as time's gone by I just think that both that like pure beauty and like ugliness are are equally beautiful. And I think that with art in general, if you only show the beauty, it's like one dimensional and it doesn't, it doesn't capture things in the same way. You know, like love is beautiful and safe and comforting, but it's also like the most painful thing in the world. 
at times and not even because someone's hurting you but just sharing someone's pain and you know having that kind of intimate relationship with someone uh is it's intense and it's it's more than just soft and and beautiful and I think that that kind of stuff has always I've always been drawn to it because it elicits a completely different feeling in you a more much more layered feeling when you can capture the good and the bad and it's it like creates a much more layered view of any type of situation or feeling so is that part of what drew you to working with with daniel it's obviously an unexpected collaboration yeah i'm a big fan of his and even bigger after knowing him because i love him i've always just thought he made the most i i love like his ambient stuff and i've always just thought it was so like beautiful but also yeah kind of like eerie and and nasty at points and I absolutely love it and I just kind of knew when we got uh we were talking about the next record my label sent over like a list and he was on it and I was like that'd be cool if he would like I don't (laughs) that seems crazy and he was interested and I just immediately was like this is what I want to do I don't I don't even care if he hasn't like worked on like much rock stuff I just I know that this I trust his like taste and I was just kind of like I can't picture the end game here but I know it's gonna be just like special and that it's just gonna take these songs to the next level because the writing in general for this album had a little bit more strangeness at points and just kind of a magical sense to it so I was just kind of like, whatever we do, it's gonna be, it's gonna be cool. It's gonna be different, and we're gonna have a really fun time. And it just ended up feeling like not just for me and Dan, but for like everybody like in the band, just like really inspiring and like exciting while we were making the record. I know you said to I think it was Quinn Morland at Pitchfork that you can get quite territorial with your music, especially after you've worked. You know, you've been working with Gabe for so long, and you guys have a very deep understanding then somebody new comes in how territorial did you get because obviously you're working with dan specifically because you want to sort of tear things up you want things to be weird and different and new how easy was it to process that to like allow somebody into that uh honestly it was easy i think i don't like sharing my songs unless i you know pick uh with producers like pick someone specifically that seems like they get what i'm wanting to do and i can trust them to because i'm kind of big picture So somebody's got to come in and like get us there. And it's just for me, it's about finding someone that I trust will get us there in an interesting way. And it'll it'll be fun and it'll like inspire me to have all the like a bunch of little ideas. And with like Gabe has always been amazing. And Gabe did some pre-mixing on this record as well with Dan. But yeah, like I I wasn't too worried. There's a little bit of anxiety, you know, right before going in just because it's like, oh, we've never even, all we've done is like texted a bunch of ideas and like we seem really in tune, but you kind of never know. But I've, I just had this sense, I was like such a big fan and I felt like I just loved his style that I was like, there's nothing that I could imagine him doing. Like I wanted him to go all out. I didn't want him to come in and like, you know, try to be really safe and and chill. Like I wanted him to get to have moments where he went kind of crazy on songs and... Like I didn't want him holding back. So I wasn't I wasn't really that that scared. I was like more excited. Where do you think he goes craziest? New demo.
new demo um unholy unholy like yeah he that was like day two of being in the studio and he came in we came in in the morning and he and matt were already there and they were playing that sequencer thing that he had made with the demo in their like airbnb and we were all like whoa this is crazy this is so sick like and he was like is it like too crazy we were all like no no this should be like the entire song honestly like um and then we like did a did a live band take and only ended up using a little bit of it because it was just like so like the stuff he had made was like so sick i mean obviously now you're you're going to be taking this out on the road how many shows have you played since color theory came out um we went on a east and west coast u.s leg in the fall like you know like a full thing and then in the spring we did a a month of like mostly east coast like b market cities and we've done a couple fests so we've played some shows and we've been practicing the new songs for a long time now is like color theory out of your system yeah, I mean, we'll we'll still play some, you know. It'll there'll still be like probably like three or four songs in the set, um, then a couple from like Clean, but we're gonna be mostly playing the new record by the time it comes. Like by the time we're doing actual like full touring later in the year, it's gonna be lots of new songs. Do Daniel's contributions present new challenges of how you're gonna perform things live? No, because the way we did it was like even with something like Unholy Affliction. It, we just kind of got the the sounds and like, you know, we have someone playing synth. So we just kind of use that. But with most of the songs, it wasn't like unlike records in the past. It was very like we did these live band takes and we got it all right. You know, we got all the like little transitions we wanted to do and little things like that into the live takes. And then like kind of added on top, we didn't like chop things up very much or there's not really much drum machine. I think the only drum machine is on Darkness and it's with live drums. The basis of the songs is very like how we were gonna play them live pretty much. So it, it's kind of easy to to incorporate them. I just wanted to finish by maybe going back to where we were, because we talked a lot about the autobiographical nature of some of these songs, the anxiety and sort of tumult of it all. Then you got Following Eyes, which is the first like proper attempt at just full on fiction in the Soccer Mummy catalog. Maybe. I mean, Lucy's kind of. Lucy gets pretty close there. Still Clean gets pretty close. But but yeah, I mean, this one is just straight up a, a ghost story that I made for fun after I made like a creepy lick. The lyrical content of some of it does fit in, like it, it dovetails well with, with a lot of the darker themes on the record. It's kind of cool to just see you having fun like this. Did it feel, was it, did it feel fun to write? Did it feel fun to make? Oh yeah, I mean, I was just, this one was written in between two of the recording sessions and I thought the album was already done and I like was playing around with this really heavy tuning 
and made this riff and I was just kind of like wanting to write like a creepy ghost story within it and like make it kind of eerie and and spooky and ghastly and yeah it was it was great it was really fun it felt like it had to go on the record just because of the like sound and like thematic stuff that was on it like it just felt like it fit perfectly and again that that blending of light and dark that i think comes across on this record you haven't started writing more yet have you you like taken a have you been able to pause um i have written like one or two more but not like not it's very abstract currently like i'm not like it's not like some plan for a next record i mean i'm sure they will end end up on the next record but it's very like you know up in the air right now Hey, amazing. Well, look, Sophie, uh, I really appreciate you making time. Thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. And yeah, good luck on the tour. Congratulations on the record. Awesome. Thank you. That was Sophie Allison in conversation with The Fader. Soccer Mommy's new album, Sometimes Forever, is out now via Loma Vista. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross. And the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, Amp. Download it from the App Store and check out our shows with the access code FADERONAMP. That's all one word. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.